There's two exciting journeys that are about to begin. Uh, one is tonight as we restart our Sunday night worship services, and the other is next Sunday as we begin a journey through the letter to the Hebrews. And today, by looking at Romans 10, I kind of hope to bridge both of those things in a sense because there is important truths that are in this chapter that are helpful, I think, for both studies. One of the things is that in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ is arguing, or one of the fundamental arguments of the Sermon on the Mount is that Israel has fundamentally misunderstood the law, fundamentally misunderstood it and its purpose and what it was trying to teach them. So I think uh, we'll find that in Romans 10. Certainly that argument is made in Romans 10. In fact, I remember in Romans 10, we often turned or looked at the Sermon on the Mount as a place to kind of cross-reference. But also Hebrews deals with the purpose of the Scriptures in the Old Testament and what the Old Testament is arguing and what it's pointing toward and where it's fulfilled. And the author of Hebrews says it's fulfilled in Christ. The purpose of the Scriptures is Christ. The purpose of all that God is doing is summed up in Christ Jesus. And so again, we're going to see that in Romans 10. That the argument of Romans 10 is that what has been missed is that the law points to a person, and that person is Christ Jesus. Now, how does Paul get there? Why does he get there? Some context is important, obviously. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, argues that all those who God foreknew will be glorified. And that's a word of comfort to these believers who are struggling. But it brings up a question, doesn't it? Well, what about Israel? Doesn't the prophet, prophet uh, Amos say that Israel alone of all the nations I have foreknown, progenosko, the word in the Septuagint they would have been familiar with, the exact same word that Paul used in Romans chapter 8? If God foreknew Israel, but what we can obviously see with our eyes is most of Israel has rejected the gospel, how are we to understand this as a promise? You might think about it for a moment. That's a difficult question. You just told us that all that God foreknew will be glorified, and yet we can see a people who we thought the Old Testament said was foreknown of God who are not. Now, Romans 9 is Paul's way of unwinding this and explaining it. And there is a lot there. Obviously, since it's not our text, we can't. I mean, we think we spent like three months in Romans 9 or maybe even a little longer than that. There's a lot there, so we can't get into it. But one of the things he starts out by saying is, Whatever you want to say is the reason, do not blame God or His Word. His Word has not failed to stand, he says. And this is an important language because Paul is going to use the same sort of root word here to say something that Israel is doing. In place of God's Word standing, they tried to erect something else. And we're going to see that in just a moment. So he goes through explaining all of this. And really 9 through 11 is this uh, part where Paul is explaining uh, in a way, his own explanation of biblical theology and salvation history and what God is doing. It is a serious question. Why has Israel missed what God was doing when they were given so many privileges? That's how Paul starts Romans 9, isn't it? You were given all these things, the oracles, right? All these revelations, all these special gifts that were given only to you. And you may remember, there's a question earlier in Romans uh, about what's the purpose of having all this? if it didn't give them some leg up, if you will, in terms of salvation? So this is an important question for Paul to answer. 
And again, it's not exactly our primary question, but it leads Paul to the question that chapter 10 answers. He comes at the end of this chapter of explaining what has happened to Israel. And he comes to verse 30 of chapter 9. And I want you to hear it because it's what he's going to deal with in chapter 10. He says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, who pursued the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness? Why? Now, before we answer to see what Paul says to answer the question, I want you to recognize it's a good question. Jews who at least cared about the righteousness of God and the law have not attained that righteousness, but Gentiles who never cared did? There does seem to be a bit of a fairness issue there, it would seem. I mean, that's the way people are going to think of it. But Paul says, they did not seek it by faith. In other words, this righteousness of God was not sought by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. The fundamental problem of misunderstanding the law is found right there. Now, Paul is going to extrapolate on that in the next chapter, chapter 10, but he says, this is the problem. And it was prophesied by God, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes on him, trust in the Lord, will not be put to shame. Now, as we begin this chapter, I want us to notice a couple of things as we get ready for chapter 10. Paul's going to answer this very difficult question. In fact, let's just read the answer. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. My friends, what is important, I think, for us to think about today are a few points, but I want to begin uh, with this idea of a misunderstanding of law because it's at the heart of this text, it's at the heart of what Paul argues is the problem in Romans. That people have misunderstood, fundamentally misunderstood what God was doing in the Old Testament. And it's caused many people difficulties, great difficulties. So Paul begins this with this evident situation that the majority of Israel seems on the outside looking in. And as we said, Romans 9 unwinds that as it says all these privileges given to Israel and yet uh, it doesn't seem to have availed them anything. And, And how is that? Well, Paul begins to answer that even further here. And the first thing that he wants to say is, the problem is not zeal. The problem is not a zeal for God. Paul says, I can testify you directly that 
Israel has a zeal for God. I can testify it because I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I had a zeal for God. I had great learning, many great things, but Paul later says, all those things I count but loss compared to what I now have in Christ. But they have zeal. Paul says, my body bears the scars of their zeal. You might think of it that way. All the beatings, all the things that Paul endured on behalf of zealous Jews. People who had a zeal for God, but what does Paul say? It's not according to knowledge. Now my friends, that's as much a message for today as it was in Paul's day. Because people argue today, well, okay, doctrine's a problem, whatever, but man, they're passionate about the Lord. Paul says it's not enough. A passion for the Lord in the wrong direction, not according to knowledge, can lead you straight into hell. Paul says, don't miss this. Zeal is good when it's according to knowledge. But zeal must be according to knowledge. And what you see amongst his brethren, according to the flesh, uh, his, his kinsmen, is that they have zeal, but they don't have knowledge. They've missed the knowledge that God intended them to have. Now, my friends, if zeal is all that mattered, this is a very different letter that Paul would write, isn't it? There'd be no need to worry about Israel at all because they have the zeal. But, my friends, zeal not according to knowledge leads to error, and that's what it's done to Israel. And Paul says they've missed what God was trying to tell them all along through all those privileges that they've been given. So, again, Paul says, I I desire the salvation of Israel. But we must recognize the problem here. They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. Well, what is their lack of knowledge in regard to? Paul answers that question for you in verse 3. Paul is a very easy person to preach. I mean, sometimes the concepts are difficult, but Paul usually just walks right in a logical line. Boom, 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 boom. And you see it here. What is the problem for which they do not have knowledge? Paul says, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. My friends, that's a bad thing to be ignorant of. God's righteousness. Now, there's a couple of ways that you can understand this. I mean, it's this word, dikaiosune, that we've talked about a lot when we were going through Romans. This word for the righteousness, standing that we do not have in and of ourselves. This uh, position of being right before a holy and righteous God. It could mean that they're ignorant of the righteousness of God, which Paul defines in uh, the first chapter of this letter as what? The righteousness that's been revealed by God from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel. But it could also just mean they don't understand God's holiness, His righteousness. And that clearly is a part of it. Because what would that tell you if you understood God's holiness? That God is supremely and perfectly holy, and I am not. I am a fallen sinner. And therefore, I cannot be reconciled to God on my own through the works of my hands. As that hymn that we sing so often says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Why? There's no works that I can do to avail me of salvation before God. That's what Paul is saying. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. They think the righteousness of God is something so low that they can attain it for themselves. If you don't believe that, Look at the next clause. And seeking to establish their own righteousness. That word for establish is to make stand. Very similar to what Paul says in Romans 9. 
uh, that it's not as if the word of God has failed to stand. He says in its place they're trying to stand their own works of righteousness to avail much before God. Now, we might say that's a sign of ignorance of the gospel for sure. But Paul doesn't want us to believe that it's innocent either. It isn't innocent. Because look at the next phrase. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Hypotasso, that means to to put yourself under. They've refused to bow down beneath the righteousness of God. Now again here, you can take this as the righteous standard of God, God's righteousness, uh, our lack of righteousness before God in and of ourselves. Whatever you want to say, it's clear here what Paul is saying is they have not submitted to what God has revealed. They haven't submitted to the gospel message that they are sinners in need of the grace of God. They've believed that they can erect for themselves a scaffolding of righteousness that will be enough before a holy and righteous God. And Paul says, oh, they fundamentally misunderstood the law. The law's purpose was to point you to your need of a righteousness you cannot avail for yourself. It was to show you God's perfect holy standard and the fact that you cannot meet it. Over and over, we see that in the Old Testament. It's not just something we have to infer. It's told us over and over again, as we'll see in a moment. But Paul says the very law that was meant to crush our self-reliance has somehow been fundamentally corrupted by Israel Instead of knocking their knees out from under them, it's made them feel they can stand tall before God. Paul says they fundamentally missed it. You know, uh, James says to have kept all the law but have broken it in one place is to have broken all the law. It's like if I take a baseball and throw it through the corner of the window and I go, well, I only broke the corner of the window. No, the whole pane is broken, isn't it? The whole pane is broken. In the same way, to have broken one part of the law means you cannot stand righteously before the law. You are a breaker of the law. No longer righteous. And so again, they've responded to the law improperly. Instead of seeing its condemnation of their sin, they mistook it for a ladder by which they could climb their way to God's righteousness. Paul says it's folly. He says it right here in this text. It's folly. It's folly. They fundamentally misunderstood, even though Moses told them over and over. Even though the prophets told them over and over. I'm reminded, Isaiah did not stand before the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 and says, I'm good. Yes, I'm of a people of unclean lips, but I'm clean. Isaiah said, woe is me. I am unclean. I'm of a people of unclean lips, and I am unclean myself. And my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. My friends, again, it's found over and over again that the law shows us our guilt. Now, this is not a new message for Paul. Galatians 2.21, which many of you know is, if not my favorite verse, very close. Everybody quotes Galatians 2.20, but 2.21 says what? I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness cometh by law, Christ died for nothing. What's Paul arguing? If you could do it through law, why did Christ need to come? What would it say of our God to send His Son to the cross because we're too lazy to do what we ought to do? Fundamentally, the message over and over has been that the law shows us how dirty we are, how much we need redemption, but it does not offer us redemption. 
Paul argues in 2 Corinthians, it wasn't empowered in that way. He says, it's a glorious covenant, but when you compare it to the new covenant, which is so glorious, it's as if it has no glory at all. It's amazing language when you think about it. But again, what Paul is trying to tell us is the law's purpose is not to give you reason to boast. What does Paul say earlier in this very letter? The purpose of the law is to shut every mouth before God. Can you imagine? I mean, think about that. How many people think about the law that way? The law's purpose is to shut you up before God, to take away any ability to boast, to make you recognize before God, I have nothing in which to boast. Paul says, if I boast, let me boast in Christ. That's what it's supposed to lead you to. And the proof of that is in verse 4. What should the law have shown? What should the law have pointed to? Well, this is our second point. Paul says, for Christ is the telos. My translation says end. Maybe yours does as well. The end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, many people rejoice when they hear that because they misunderstand what Paul is saying. They say, oh, uh, the law is done away with. It doesn't exist anymore. It has nothing to say to us. That's not what Paul's saying. The word, and it, by the way, it's because we translate it as end. And people think of end as something that stops. And that is true, but there are uh, other ways to understand it as well. I was trying to think of a few ways. You could think of it as a bell that signals the end of a class. That would be the way that people are misusing it. But also it can mean that an end's been met. Yes? You could say uh, that we've come to the end of our, of our drive means we've reached the goal of it. It can also mean the end in terms of time, but it also can mean that we've met our goal. It can also mean something we didn't foresee, the result of an action. I didn't foresee the end of that path. I didn't see the goal, didn't see what it was going to bring to. Well, Paul means it in this way. The aim, the end, the purpose of the law is Christ. Now, we can see that in many places. When you get into these things, you really have to jump around a little bit. But in Galatians 3, we have a great example by Paul of a Pythagogus, schoolmaster, something like that, maybe your translation says. But Paul says it's a person who takes us by the hand and leads us to Christ. That's an illustration. He's saying the law is like this, Pythagogus, that takes us by the hand and leads us to Christ. Now, Pythagogus was actually a slave, a servant. Someone who worked for a, a rich man and, and was a trusted slave. Somebody that the master could trust. And he would send that slave with his son by hand to the teacher. He was not the teacher. He was not the teacher. There would be a philosopher or a, a historian. Somebody teach a child. But the podagogus took him to that teacher and stayed there all day long until it was time for him to be brought home. He would bring him home, and he was over making sure he did his studies and all those things. But he was trusted. Now, oftentimes, with these illustrations, people push every little detail too far. What Paul is saying, in the same way that you understand this role in the real world, in a similar way, the law's purpose was to simply take you by the hand and take you to Christ. That's it. The law's job was to say, you know what? You need a Savior. God is perfectly holy. You are not. You need a Redeemer. 
If you were hearing the law, he would have taken you by the hand, if you want to personify him, and he would have walked you straight to Christ. And you would have recognized your need of Christ because you would have heard what the law was saying. In other words, the law is not the main thing. Paul says elsewhere that the law almost came in at the side. Now, he's not trying to dismiss the law, but he's trying to make the point here that the law's purpose is to lead you to something greater than the law, and that is Christ. Now, the truth of the law is perfectly great. I don't want to be misunderstood on this, but he means it's not the end in itself. The purpose or the goal of it is to lead you to Christ. Now, what is the purpose of of going to the schoolmaster, having the pedagogus take you to the schoolmaster? It was to prepare you, right, for the role ahead, for the thing that that you were going to have as the inheritor of this estate. In the same way, my friends, the law was preparing you for the revelation that would come in Christ. And so there's no conflict between the two. They work complementary. In fact, as Christ says himself in the Sermon on the Mount, the law is perfected, if you will, or made complete, fulfilled in Christ. So that's the goal of the law to lead you to Christ, to show you your need of a righteousness that can only be obtained by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. So that's why we translate it as goal. The goal of the law is Christ. Now, the goal of the coming of Christ is not to do away with the law. We need to say this. The law still reveals to us the perfect wisdom and righteousness of God. But our relationship to it changes in Christ. Right? Uh, we are freed in a sense from it in, in one sense that Paul uses earlier in this letter. Man, it's hard to preach Romans because there are many places you want to go and camp and we don't have time to today. But anyway, so it can be translated as goal. Oftentimes you'll see it that way. The goal of the law is Christ. But my friends, there are other ways it can be translated that I think are just as correct. The aim of the law, the purpose of the law, these are all meanings of telos. The purpose of the law is Christ. It's to point you to Christ, your need of Christ. Now, how did this get messed up by anyone? Well, Paul says it's because it was pursued in a manner not keeping with the teachings of God, with His instruction. They missed the entire point. Israel missed the point of the law, the purpose of the law. At its base, the law points to your need of grace, the Redeemer, and the Old Testament confirms that point over and over and over and over, and I could go on a thousand times saying over. When Luther uh, came to understand the gospel, he said, I went through and reread the Bible. It's like reading a whole new book. I saw all these things I had never seen before that were there. And that's precisely why for our third point, Paul moves directly from here into two quotations from Moses. Now, From the very first chapter, Paul has been establishing that this is the message of the Old Testament. This is no invention of Paul. This is the thing attested in the Old Testament Scriptures, Paul says in chapter 1. He then goes on to quote, the just shall live by faith to say, here's a quotation from the Old Testament. He then goes on to say, listen, I'll quote from the life of Abraham. This is no new thing. Abraham trusted God, he believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. He says, this is what David said. This is so many places it's found in the Old Testament Scriptures. And here he goes again. This is our final point this morning. He says, look at what Moses said. 
Moses gives you a righteousness that comes by law and a righteousness that comes by faith. Look at them. Now, I want you to turn at some point to Leviticus 18.5 to read it on your own. But you don't have to turn now unless you want to. He says there, the man who does those things shall live by them. Now he's talking about the law. Those who do the commands of God will live by the commands of God. Now we're all commanded to do the commands of God. But he's talking about something here in the text, isn't he? As he comes to Leviticus 18, this is a part of the law. Instructions that God does not intend to be optional. They're not optional instructions. They are the word of God, the command of God to the people of God, the, uh, the nation of Israel. They are to obey these commandments. And he gives this part of the law. They are word and command of God. Now, I don't know if you remember our journey through Romans. I don't know how many times I said these words. Scholars say Paul is abusing the text, right? Turn back to Leviticus 18 and they say, no, 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 no. Paul's not talking about salvation. He's talking about blessings and cursings in the land. But Paul's trying to establish something here, isn't he? That if we think about it, we know is logical. The pattern of the Old Testament that we all recognize in the law is that under law, blessing and life come from doing and keeping. Cursing and death come from violating and not keeping. So Paul says this is a very basic pattern that we understand. He's simply pointing out that any righteousness that would come by law, if it's available to us, must be met by keeping the conditions of the law. And how many breakings of the law are you allowed to have said you fully kept the law? Well, we already answered that, didn't we? In James, there are no violations of the law allowed if you're going to have been said to have perfectly kept it. So Paul is pointing out to us that we're in trouble. We're in trouble. If we want to stand by the law, Moses says, listen, if you do the works of the law, you can surely live by the works of the law. But to go that route, you're going to have to keep the law perfectly. Which, Cliff's notes, is impossible for you and I. Impossible. Now, that doesn't mean that Moses is lying when he says that you can be justified by law. He's saying, theoretically, if you could keep the law, you could be justified by the law. I think when we were going through Romans, I gave the example that if somebody came to me and said that they could lift up this church building with their bare hands, I would say, well, if you can do that, you're the strongest person in the world. Well, the fact that if they could lift this building, they would be the strongest person in the world does not conflict with the fact that I am 100% sure they cannot lift the building. In the same way, Moses says, if you can perfectly keep the law, you will be counted righteous by the law. That's true, but you cannot perfectly keep the law. We had a Redeemer that came, took on a tent of flesh, and perfectly kept the law on our behalf and went to Calvary's cross and gave His life as an atonement. But it's not possible that those fallen in Adam can do it. Now, we've thought about this. You cannot be declared righteous by law, but in theory, if you could keep the law perfectly, then you could. But since you can't, it's not the answer you need. All right, so guess what? Paul says, there you go, that's what Leviticus says. Moses testifies that the law is a route of salvation 
really isn't going to be a good route for you to go. But then he says he contrasts it with Deuteronomy 30. I want you to think about this for a minute. If you've got a second, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is a fascinating chapter. Now, I want you to listen, first of all, to this text, because there's something important here in 8 through 10 that he says, And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all His commandments which I commanded you today. Now, that's a word saying you will obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and in the produce of the land for, the, for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as He rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes which are written in the book of the law and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and again the scholars say what is Paul doing? He's fundamentally misusing and abusing a text again. Paul is saying, this, this quote is, if when you enter the land, you obey God, He'll bless you in the land. But my friends, that's not what Paul says is there. I mean, that is there, yes. But Paul says there's something else there as well. He says, think about this for a moment. Paul sees an important thread in this chapter that runs through all of Scripture, all of sacred Scripture. Earlier in this very, uh, in this very letter, Deuteronomy 10.16, the Lord tells Israel through Moses to circumcise their hearts. Now, that language is probably familiar to you because Paul says it in Romans, that the circumcision God desires is not of the outward flesh but the heart. God desires circumcision of the heart. What it says in Deuteronomy, Moses says, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Don't be rebellious. Be sensitive to God. Respond to God. Hear God. Love God. Be circumcised in your heart. Paul didn't make that language up, but he'd read it before, and it struck him as important. That same command is given in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Again, Paul noticed that language. We wouldn't, shouldn't be surprised that he uses it in Romans. He recognizes something important in it in the Old Testament. In both the cases that we're looking at, the command that God is giving His people is a command of inward transformation. Inward transformation. Man who is repeatedly failed at keeping the law, is told that what he really needs is a change of heart. Well, that's good to know, but the testimony of the Scriptures is man is fundamentally powerless to do this. Man cannot change his own heart. Now, we shouldn't be surprised again that Paul is struck by this. It's an important phrase, if you will, in the text. This circumcision of the heart, the thing that man most needs, he cannot do for himself. He cannot provide righteousness for himself. He cannot change his own heart. And that truly is the dilemma that Paul is pointing to that the law creates. It shows you a righteous standard that it doesn't empower you to meet. That's why Paul can give this language in Romans of the law's condemnation, that wherever the law pointed to, it seemed to condemn him because it didn't help him to keep it. 
It could not offer the change of heart that he recognized he needed. This is one of the fundamental problems of the Old Testament that the the prophets are recognizing. What we really need is a new covenant, Jeremiah says, written on the heart. And thank goodness in Jeremiah 31, 31, we're promised just such a thing. I think Paul sees these as very parallel. So Paul says what we need is a change of heart that the law doesn't provide. Now, what help then is Deuteronomy 30 to that? That's a good question, right? What help does Deuteronomy chapter 30 give us? Well, in the same way that C.S. Lewis once said that joy in this life is like a little bit of heaven breaking through into time and space. I think as Paul reads the law here, he sees just a glimpse of the gospel breaking through. A glimpse of the gospel, the glory of the gospel breaking through. It's not as expressed as fully as in the New Testament, of course, but it's here. Look at verses 1 through 6. And I want you to think about what's said here. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And listen to this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. I think when Paul went back and read Deuteronomy chapter 30, he recognized over and over a command of the Old Testament to circumcise your hearts and the inability to do it. And here the promise of God looking past taking the land, looking past being driven out of the land, looking to a day when the people are brought back into the land. He sees there this promise that they won't have to circumcise their hearts. God will be the one to circumcise their hearts. My friends, what is impossible for them, God will do. I think again, Paul sees this as exactly parallel to Jeremiah chapter 31. And this covenant that will be written on the hearts of man, this new covenant, not written on tablets of stone, but written on sarka, flesh, heart, flesh, heart. If you want to really deep dive into that, I'd recommend you go to 2 Corinthians. Look at chapters 2 through about 5 and what Paul says there about this, this glorious covenant written not on tablets of stone but on flesh heart. This glorious covenant that has been made. My friends, when you think about what is being said here, what Paul recognizes is Here is the promise of the gospel. What is impossible for man is not impossible for God. What you cannot do to avail something for yourself, God can do to avail for you. That by His grace, He can send a Redeemer who can atone for your sins, 
and set you free. And if you look at the rest of what Paul quotes, if you turn back very quickly to to Romans, and I think I actually left my place there. But uh, anyway, if you look back to it, what do you see? He asked this question that uh, is there in the text. He says, you know, who will go up into heaven to bring Christ down? And, and who will go into the abyss to bring Christ up? And again, the scholars say, Paul, what are you doing? You're abusing the text again. Paul says, no, I'm not. Deuteronomy 30 is about what God does for you that you cannot do for yourself. He says, when you had no revelation of God, where could you go to get it? Nowhere. There's no ocean you could cross to get the Word of God. There's no height that you could claim or to climb to get to the Word of God. There is no depth that you could crawl into to find the Word of God. God brought it to you. He brought it to you. He says, that's exactly parallel to the gospel message. You couldn't climb high enough to save yourself. You couldn't dig deep enough to save yourself. You couldn't find an ocean to cross far enough that you could save yourself. But praise God, He did it. He brought it to you. He brought salvation to you. Paul says, I'm one of the instruments of how He did it. As He sent me into your town, into your place, or through this letter, He sent apostles to you over and over to proclaim the Word of God, the Gospel. It's been brought to you. It's a gift. If you could earn it, it would be a wage. We could go to another place in Romans, couldn't we? And spend some time there on wages versus gifts. What's he saying? It's just like the revelation of God because it is the revelation of God. God has given you His Word, His Gospel. He has given it to you. It's been brought to you. What's left for you to do? Well, Paul gives us that answer as well. Amazing. What does he say? By the way, he says, this is the word of faith which we preach. Just as Moses was talking about the revelation of God then, I'm talking about the revelation of God to you today. The word of faith which we preach. That if what? You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what's left for you to do. Believe the message. It's been brought to you. God, by grace, has offered salvation in Christ Jesus. What is left for you to do? But declare Him as Lord and trust in Him. Believe this gospel promise. I believe when he says that God raised Him from the dead, that's kind of Paul's shorthand for the gospel. The perfect life, the atoning death, and the glorious resurrection of our Lord. If you believe that and you confess Christ as Lord, you will be saved. Any other way you're trying to climb higher, dig deeper, or cross an ocean. And Paul says, my friends, those paths lead straight to hell. Lead straight to hell. So my friends, we need to recognize what Paul is saying here. The entirety of the Old Testament message pointed to the person and work of Christ. Now, since Paul summed that up for us, I guess we don't need to go through Hebrews now. But we're going to see that the author of Hebrews makes the same argument by turning many places. And so, my friends, I look forward to that. Let's pray.